This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. We're here today to talk to Professor Gilles Duranton, who is chair of the real estate department at the Wharton School. And he's here to discuss his research on urban mobility and vehicle innovation, which is being funded by the Mac Institute for Innovation Management. Professor Duranton, welcome. Thank you. Could you start by telling us about your research? So my research is interested in congestion because we all perceive that congestion when we live in large cities is a big problem in our life, right? It prevents us from going places when we want to. It's making our commutes longer than perhaps they need to be. When we ask people actually what is the thing that they dislike the most in their life, uh, they usually mention, well, congestion, well, number one. They also mention, well, childcare is number two, but that's... Uh, uh, so here, what I'm doing is I look at one particular city which is Bogota, Colombia. I'm taking Bogota, Colombia because I think we know far less about congestion in developing countries where it may be an even bigger problem. So the, the way I'm saying, or the way what I'm thinking about that problem really is the following. When you take your car and ride, you pay a cost, uh, which is the cost of going from one place to another that without traffic, and then there's the traffic of the others that slows you down, but you also slow down everybody else. So there is a difference between how much you pay, i.e. Well, the time when you spend while traveling, which is your private cost of going places, relative to actually how much you cost to society by imposing more congestion on others. So the others are imposing some congestion on you, but you impose some congestion on the others. The second element is actually larger. And we think that, so I'm trying well to, I'm trying well to compute well that wedge. So in order to do that, I'm gathering data from an actual travel survey. I want to know, or I need to know, where people go to and go from. And on the supply side, I'm interested in how much slower will traffic is as you have more and more drivers. So I'm trying to compute that quantity first. That allows me to compute the social cost of driving in terms of congestion. That's certainly not the only well, social cost well, of driving. You also have issues, of course, of pollution, of accidents, and so on and so forth. But here, I'm only, I'm only well interested in congestion. That's what I can measure, so that's what I do. And on the demand side, I'm also I, I also need to know how much people pay for their travel in terms of time when they choose to travel. But in order to know about their demand, I also need to know how much well, they would pay at times when they're choosing not to travel. So in order to get those counterfactuals, I'm scraping my data from Google Maps. So at the end of the day, what I find is that the demand for travel is mildly elastic. Uh, that's probably well, the first estimate in the literature, so that's useful. But what is more surprising is that I find on the demand side, actually, the wedge or the difference between how much will you cost well, to society and how much will you pay yourself is actually far from being as large as what we suspected, in the order of 5 to 20 percent, well, as opposed to 100 percent or more, as we were, as we were, were conjecturing well, before, based on studies of one particular road or some, or some purely with, with theoretical thinking. Okay. What were your key takeaways from this research? 
So my key takeaway is that actually the social cost of congestion is much smaller than we think. I am not saying that traveling in large cities is easy. I'm just saying that the pure social cost of congestion is actually pretty small. So that means that for a city like Bogota and maybe for other cities, we may want to think instead of just curbing well congestion by imposing well congestion charge, which is still a meaningful idea, but at the same time, maybe well, the real issues of slow traffic are or elsewhere. We may be thinking about how much roadways should the cities provide, uh, what sort of model choice we want to give well, to people, whether it, well, it should actually be uh, private vehicles or more transit or a mixture well, of the two, whether we should, whether and how well, we should well, manage well, traffic uh, in terms of coordinating red lights. So we some of the big issues actually seem to be about the nitty-gritty of traffic management more than trying to curb demand well directly through a congestion charge. Did any conclusions surprise you? So the size of that social cost of congestion is much smaller than I expected. It's also much smaller than everybody else expected in, uh, who's interested in transportation. So as a result, I'm getting people who are in slight disbelief relative to what I do. At the same time, I think my finding is completely reasonable because, again, I'm not finding a huge wedge between social costs uh, on the supply side because what you have is basically the speed of traffic between the best time of the day and the worst time of the day is divided by two, whereas the amount of travelers is multiplied by perhaps two orders of magnitude. So it means that the, under, that the underlying elasticity cannot be that large. And then when you do, in technical terms, your triangle of welfare loss, uh, you have a small wedge multiplied by a small quantity divided by two because that's a triangle. It's going to be at most 1% of daily income that we actually lose in pure congestion. So well, the problem well, is, again, there's this reasonably strong demand. People want to travel. And there's only well, limited well, capacity well, for them well, to do so. But the pure external effect element is not that large. What are the practical implications of your research? What can other large cities do with this information? So actually, I'm revising again my judgment about how much of a priority should charging for congestion be. As most economists, I was like, okay, that's what we need to do. That's the first, uh, that's the beginning and the end of everything about urban traffic. I think now I still think it's an important idea and we should be thinking about that. But I also think we should be thinking about how much roadway well provision we have in developing cities like Bogota. Actually, well, the roadway may be grossly insufficient and we should be thinking about traffic management very well, very well seriously, much more seriously than we've been. What sets your research apart from prior work in this area? So there's really not much prior work on congestion. You're going to tell me you must be kidding. Uh, what people have done previously was actually to measure things at the level of one particular road or a set of segments on a road or a small number of roads. I think this is deeply problematic to do that because indeed on a road, when you keep adding cars, at some point traffic will stop, right? 
Uh, in an entire city, I think it's a very well defendable proposition because what happens somewhere has effects, spills over on what, on what happens elsewhere. It's a network, and we need to think about this entire one network well together. In particular, when the, when the highway is clogged, people will start using main arterials. When the main arterials are clogged, people will start using secondary arterials or even with local roads. So it means that unlike what we think when we keep we're putting more and more cars on one street, it will get clogged. Actually, there are so many well options that uh, there's always some sort of ceiling or floor in terms of well, in terms of the speed will come in from the fact that you always have small streets, local streets that are usually empty. So they may, they're going to be slow, they're not going to be practical. That may create some negative implications, but people will actually start using them. So it means that barely ever will traffic come to a complete standstill in an entire well area. Again, it can happen when there's an accident on a particular road, but it normally well does not happen. How will you follow up this research? So what we did here was to work on only one city uh, where we had a lot of really precise information. What I want to do now is actually to work on all major cities of the world. So we started well collecting data. We started well collecting well data for about 200 well cities in India. And we want to generalize that to whatever, four, five thousand cities all over the world so that we can actually look at travel behavior, at the ease of travel, at the ease of reaching some particular well destinations in lots and lots of places, and then try to see what determines that, if it's really the level of advancement of a country, if it's the amount of roadway, if if these are well particular if these are well well, particular, well, policies and all those things. So it's a big research agenda we're looking forward. How do you foresee innovations in vehicle technologies reshaping our cities based on your research? So the first point is that self-driving cars or whatever you may want to call them, uh, they're coming and they're coming reasonably soon. The first big issue is at some point we'll need to get rid of the steering wheel which is a big, discrete change, which may not go that, which may not go well that smoothly, but I think within 10, 20 years that will happen. So the first thing that that self-driving cars will do will be to lower the time cost of travel. Not because they will go that much faster. Actually, they will probably be slower, but we can do lots of other things instead of driving. So actually, when we try to estimate the cost of travel, a large fraction of that cost. The, well, 50% to 90%, well, depending on your income, will be your time. So this time now can be used productively instead of just driving and trying to pay attention. You can actually do work, watch movies, and do, and do well, all sorts of things. So it means that actually the time cost of driving uh, will be far less. So when we look at what is the propensity of people well, to travel well, depending on how costly it is well, to travel, we can only guess that people will want to travel more and perhaps a lot more. Uh, maybe 50% more, maybe 100% more. So we're talking well, possibly about a lot more driving, which means that people will be probably be willing well, to come to work from much further away. So I do suspect that indeed there will be a big movement of suburbanization that will go even much further than anything we've seen. So some people are deeply worried well, about that. Uh, that's clearly a distinct, that's clearly well, a distinct well, possibility offered by this new technology. At the same time, the other big beneficiaries, you're going to reduce the average, well, well, the cost of traveling per mile. But what you're also going to reduce is the necessity to park, to go and reach your car, and so on and so forth. All, all, all what we can call 
well, the fixed cost of driving. And in that case, that will mostly benefit people that actually pay a high fixed cost per trip, which are people that live in dense urban environments where finding parking is difficult, where accessing well, your car well, is difficult. So these people will also will gain a lot. Uh, they will start sharing cars indeed. Cars will start showing up exactly where you are, more or less when you want them well, to show up. Uh, there's one estimate which says that we spend about 30% of our time in, well, in center cities looking for parking. So this will disappear. So that will also be with a big gain. So it means that center city living will also become more attractive. So I think it's unclear which one will gain most, but I think we, we will see both at the same time more suburban well development really far away, but also greater well attractiveness of central cities at the same time. So how do you think that self-driving technology will impact congestion in major urban centers? So I think self-driving cars will actually impact major urban centers in lots of ways. What's going to happen is that self-driving cars will be much more agile at going through intersections. Uh, road capacity, so the distance between any two cars, which these days is about 1.5 to 2 seconds, can actually be dramatically reduced. So cars can actually travel really, really close to each other. All this means that actually road capacity, keeping the roadway well constant, but the capacity will be tremendously increased, perhaps by a factor of 4, 5, or, or on highways, well, maybe 10. So it means that we may actually need, in the end, less roadway, because even though I think well, traffic will increase, but not in those proportions. So it means that actually, so congestion may become a thing of the past at some point, which would be great, of course. Uh, we may also have very different well, cities in terms of layout, because self-driving cars, if everybody has a self-driving car, uh, and that will happen at some point, maybe not 15 years from now, but 30 or 40 years from now. We will no longer need traffic signals and so on and so forth. So life may actually, we may not even need sidewalks. Uh, we may actually be in for a much more pleasant urban environment. Professor Jordan, thank you. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.